and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Simon Tam, the founder of the Asian American dance rock band, The Slants. Tam was the plaintiff in the 2017 Supreme Court case, Matal v. Tam, in which the court held that the provision of the Lanham Act prohibiting the trademark office from registering disparaging marks violated the First Amendment. So welcome to the show, Simon. Thanks so much for having me. Um, It's the honor and pleasure is all mine. It's so great to have you on this program. Um, I'm a a big admirer of what you do, and this is a really significant case, and I really appreciate you making the time to come on the show. Sure. I'm grateful that you're providing a time and platform for me to be able to share my story, especially because... You know, I, I follow law Twitter, even though I'm not a law professor, and it's always fascinating to see the kind of discussions that that unfold. But uh, yeah, anytime I have a chance to be able to share that story, I'm I'm just always always grateful for that. Awesome. Well, I'd like to talk to you later in the podcast about your experiences with what lawyers, law professors, and law Twitter have had to say about your band and the case. But I wonder if you could start by just talking a little bit about yourself and the history of the band. I mean, you're the founder and the bassist of The Slants. I wonder if you could tell uh, tell us a little bit about the kind of the formation story of the band and the kind of influences on your music. Like, why did you start the band and what kind of band did you want it to be? When I started the band, I, I mean, really kind of the, the idea for the band came to me in 2004. And I oftentimes will share this story about how I was watching uh, Kill Bill, the Quentin Tarantino film on DVD, like the week it came out. And as I'm watching this film, it, there's a very particular scene where this woman named Oranishi begins walking into this restaurant, and she's kind of followed by her gang of crazy 88s. That's the uh, Asian mafia, the Yakuza that she leads. And that moment was actually the first time that I could ever realize that I that I ever seen Asian Americans depicted as cool, confident, and sexy by Hollywood. Like every other American film I saw growing up showed us playing very stereotypical roles like Long Duck Dong and Sixteen Candles, or oftentimes not even Asian actors portraying Asians like Mickey Rooney and and, um, Breakfast at Tiffany's. And so the first time I saw that, it was really, really powerful. And I realized, wow, you know, if, if Hollywood is bad, then the music industry is worse because this is before YouTube was even around. And I had I could not think of a single Asian American artist that had been on the cover of Rolling Stone or Paste or uh, in, in the billboards, and so that night I realized something needed to change. That there was a severe lack of representation by Asian American artists, and so I thought, let's go ahead and do this. As far as the music's concerned, well, I grew up in the eighties. I, you know grew up with synth pop music and new wave tunes. So I thought it'd be really great if I could incorporate some of those sounds uh, in a kind of a more modern rock and roll kind of edge. You know, we were surrounded by kind of the growing indie rock scene. So I thought, why not like kind of marry these two different worlds and wrap it around this identity that I had uh, specifically for representation and to kind of celebrate our culture. Mm-hmm. Well, so I know that you were in some bands before the slants. Is the sound of the slants like consistent with your previous bands, or was this a new direction for you 
No, most of the bands I played in before like were really centered around punk music. So uh, the the band that I was in right before the Slants, it was really kind of a mesh between Iggy Pop and the Stooges and ACDC. And then everything else I played in pretty much sounded like the Ramones, no matter what I tried to do. So this was definitely a different take on it. Well, and the band has a really unique visual aesthetic as well, as you've noted, kind of drawn from like Asian mafia movies and whatnot. And I can say like, I'm personally a big beat Takeshi fan. I wonder if there are particular films or directors whose styles were influential for you on the style of the band. I mean, pretty much anything out of like 80s, 90s Hong Kong cinema. So beat certainly... Uh, like Chow, like Ch- Chow and Fat is is a huge influence in terms of like, I mean, you know, he created kind of the Hong Kong version of like uh, The Godfather and Goodfellas through um, uh, a better, to- a co- couple of his films, like A Better Tomorrow. And it, it just like a lot of that kind of early like bravado that, that that the Hong Kong cinema provided for Asian American males or Asian males that I didn't see in Hollywood cinema was definitely stuff that I really gravitated towards. Plus, I just thought it looked cool. Like, um, you know, like if you got a awesome jacket and, and tie, like it looks cool. And, and it definitely sets you apart immediately from all the other people playing at clubs that are just in their t-shirts and jeans. I, I wanted to stand out from the very beginning so that as soon as we walked into the club, people look, could look at us and say, they're in a band. And as soon as we took the stage, that there was a certain presence that would be felt. I, that That's something that could come across through imagery, certainly, through attitude, and, and of course, style. So all these things I was trying to be very, very deliberate about. And also the fact that like most people don't see bands full of like asian american people on stage like it 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 threw a lot of people off especially when we first started touring uh you know sometimes people would come up to us and say like do you do you speak english like you know what's going on here i I mean that happened to me like two years ago in new york city so um it you know we, we were just trying to say like look you see all white bands and no one ever thinks twice about it so why not have an all asian american band well, so this entire controversy was about the name of the band, The Slants. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you arrived at that name, sort of what you were trying to do or what you were thinking when you chose it, whether there were other alternatives, and sort of what the broader context you were thinking about in terms of naming your band in that way was. I mean, for like for example, were there kind of models of previous bands that had taken similar name like names in a similar category with a similar goal that you were responding to, or is this just something that came to you kind of sui generis? Well, I think like for me, just growing up on punk rock, there's a certain kind of like almost band name generator part of me that's like, you know, almost every band is going to be like the somethings, you know, like a, some kind of plural thing. Like it, and when I thought, um, when I started thinking of possible band names for this project, I was just like, you know, I'm not, not quite sure because, you know, Asian Pacific Islanders are extremely diverse, even though a lot of times people think we're kind of one and the same. So I just started asking like all my non-Asian friends, like, Hey, what's something you think all Asian people have in common? And they would always say slanted eyes, which I thought was interesting because like 
I was like, well, first of all, it's not true. Like not all Asian people have slanted eyes. And second of all, we're not the only people on the planet with slanted eyes. But then I started thinking back about my, on my childhood and I was bullied and violently attacked multiple times um, just because I had certain facial characteristics, uh, you know, ethnic features. And it always came back to slanted eyes, which was something I always associated with shame. And since I, I knew that like Asians are the most bullied demographic in K-12 schools. I knew I wasn't alone in it. So I thought, what if we took it, turned it around and threw it back in its face and, and, and made it a point of pride instead. And so that's when the idea for the slants was born. I thought, yeah, this is actually kind of cool because it sounds like one of the, you know, the bands. Um, it sounds like a band Debbie Harry would front, like a very straight up new wave kind of sound. And on top of that, we could sing about our perspective or our slant on life of what it's like to be people of color growing up here and at the, you know, all while kind of reappropriating this outdated racial slur. So I thought, why not? It's, it's kind of layered, you know, and, and I just kind of love the, the playfulness of the word. I can't help but say, like, it reminds me as well of the band The Slits, kind of in a very punk rock sort of sense, and and, and doing something kind of similar too, like Absolutely. reappropriating, yeah. in their case, the misogyny directed against women, you know, in the punk scene, but just in general, and in your case, doing the, a similar kind of, of thing with respect to, to Asian Americans. Yeah, there, I mean, there's a long history of it in music. I, I mean, you know, most people will think of NWA, but like even like kind of smaller in, up and coming bands, like, um, you know, I, in the early 90s, there's a pop punk band called Pansy Division, which. Mm. Um, yeah, I saw them know. play many times. <laughs> what? Really? Yeah. I used to be a volunteer at 924 Gilman's, so. Oh, my goodness. So, you know all about Lookout <laughs> Records, which was. <laughs> That was like my middle school and high school right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. So, and you also know about the queers and, you know, bands like that. Like, for sure. Um, almost everything on Kill Rockstar's label. Like, <laughs> it was like there was this sense that we should be able to take ownership of these words, this identity that other people can't use it against us. And I think there's something really powerful in that. Mm, mm, yeah, absolutely. So the band was around for a while before you made the decision to uh, file a trademark registration application. I mean, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you got to that point and what kind of prompted you to file the application in the first place. Well, so I actually started to get to know an IP attorney just because he happened to be really good friends with our publicist. And we kind of had this um, kind of had this issue where um, someone canceled a check on us, like for a performance. And so he was like, oh, I, we, we should write a letter. And we just kind of stayed in touch after that kind of fiasco. And as as we did, he's like, you know, you're touring around the country, you're making headlines, you're doing all this stuff. You should really consider applying to register for a trademark. Um, you know, he, he encouraged it because it's actually something pretty important for, for bands to do in their career to, to protect their IP. So uh, I agreed to do it. I was like, you know, I, I first hesitated because I thought this is going to cost me a lot of money. This is going to take forever. I don't want to deal with it. But he assured me, he's like, it's a few hundred bucks, a couple months, it's over. So, um, of course, things turned out a little bit different for me. 
do I mean do you think you ever would have bothered filing a registration application if you hadn't had an attorney encouraging you to do it? I mean was that something that would have occurred to you in a different context? I don't think so. I mean I was kind of like very frugal. I mean when you're talking about a band that's just getting started, like every cent counts. And I was taking a second mortgage out just to pay for our first album and our van and trailer. So I was like thinking about every little thing that I needed to focus on. And, you know, when you think about a trademark registration, I'm like, how's that going to help us? You know, the the only thing that kind of really prompted me, like thinking about it was we had this incident where some fans in Arizona bought tickets to see um, the slants. Turns out there was another band that started calling themselves the slants and it was the wrong band um, because they wanted to see us, but the venue wouldn't give them their money back. And I just felt bad. I was like, I don't know how, how you deal with this. I thought, you know, I was so unaware of uh, IP law. I thought, I thought we had a copyright, but turns out copyright's a very different animal so <laughs> well you know it's a lot of journalists have the same misapprehension that you do so oh, you know I, I wouldn't feel too bad see a lot of articles about it now but like <laughs> i remember like I, you know i was kind of sharing that story of spencer and he's like this is why you got to do it uh the, spencer being my my first attorney who who kind of encouraged me to do it so um so finally i was like you know what we'll, we'll pull it together he gave us a great deal on it just it, it was just a flat rate of a few hundred bucks so i thought let's just make it happen and then i don't have to think about it again <laughs> well so obviously it didn't go as smoothly as you anticipated i mean how did you feel when the trademark examiner initially denied your registration application and did you understand right away why the application was denied well, oh, I understood right away, but I I honestly thought it was a joke. I thought I thought like my attorney was trying to pull something on me for fun because he's just like, oh, it was denied because um, they said the name of the band was disparaging, and I was like, what are you talking about? Like, like y- y- you know, he is there? I didn't even know there was a law against this because you know I'm like, there's all kinds of offensive stuff out there, and. You know, he explains the law to me saying like, well, it's not just like what anyone considers to be disparaging. Like if you if you come up against Section 2A of the Lanham Act, it's because um, they believe that it might disparage a substantial composite of the reference group. And so I was like, okay, like I started bracing myself like, um, you know, we've been doing this for a few years now. We play all these major Asian American festivals. Who did they find who's offended by our name? And then he was like, no one. And I'm, what are you kidding? I was like, what do you mean? You just told me the law. Like, I don't understand. And he's like, no one, but you know, they quoted UrbanDictionary.com. And I was just like, this has gotta be a joke. Like, there's no way the the federal government using like a wiki joke website. And he's like, yeah. And he you know he sends it over to me, and that's when I just was like, wow. Um, they're using wiki joke websites and pictures of Miley Cyrus and, and calling it good. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's just bonkers. So like, how did that make you feel when that happened? Well, I, I, other than feeling like confused, honestly, it was like really degrading. I mean, you have this non-Asian person basically calling my work racist, even though I was doing anti-racist work for years with my community 
we're, you know, we, we launched all kinds of anti-bullying programs. We were playing at the, these major cultural festivals and covered by every single Asian American media source in the country. I thought, how could they possibly think this? I mean, oftentimes we would get hired by the U.S. government to do outreach to Asian American communities. So I'm like, what is like, you know, it felt like a very catch-22 situation. I'm like, how could they possibly think this and and also not cite a single Asian American? Like they didn't consult any of the organizations and there are tons of them out there, but not a single one. They just was like, well, we did this quick Google search, uh, found this joke website. They ignored the several hundred thousand articles about us that was like lauding us for our work in our community and just went straight for this thing. So uh, it was incredibly insulting. And, it, you know, even today, I still sometimes feel re- repercussions of this when the government says your work is racist or it's disparaging to Asian people like I don't think people really fully grasp the weight of that and how it affects like my work in the Asian American community, especially if people don't really know us that well. Like I always have to like go through so many disclaimers and explanations of like why, why that case was off or why that judgment was wrong. Mm-hmm. Well, you, so you made the decision to challenge the denial of registration, like both at the TTAB and at the federal circuit. That's that's really expensive and burdensome and complicated. Like, why did you make that decision? What what prompted you to do that? Well, I mean, that was by that point we were a couple years in because we, we filed our first application. Uh, late 2009, early 2010. And, um, you know, by the time we got to the TTAB, like we were a few years in and, you know, we had uh, a new attorney, so Ron Coleman, um, and as a junior associate, Joel McMull, like kind of spearheaded it. And by the time we started working with them, um, I had already spoken with a lot of um, trademark professors people who worked in civil rights law. And and they were just saying like, you got to do this. This is a lot bigger than the band. And it was almost like the more we are fighting, the more that I just wanted to just get it over with to say like, look, this is, I shouldn't have to go through this process. Um, But the thing that kind of really locked it in was when we filed our second application and we, you know, the, the the examining attorney just kind of copies and pastes the response from the first application. And, and so we decided to like reframe the conversation. We said, well, why? Like, why do you think slant is disparaging when you've actually issued it as a registered trademark hundreds and hundreds of times before? In fact, when you comb through the record, I think I'm the only person in all of U.S. history to be denied a registration for this term. So we're like, what is it about this band but makes all the other ones fine? And they came back and they said, it is incontestable that the applicant is of Asian descent and part of an Asian ban. Thus, there's an association with the, the disparaging definition. Like, in other words, like they said I was too Asian to, to use the mark, that precisely because it was for an Asian American ban, that's why they went to the this outdated racial slur instead of all the many other definitions available for the term. Like if it was for a non-Asian ban, it probably wouldn't have come up at all. And so, and it, 
on top of it being like really insulting for the government to use like urban dictionary and asianjokes.com as evidence against you now you have the government saying look if you weren't asian this wouldn't be a problem like how could i walk away from that especially because i i went to the the uspto database and i look up every single other racial slur that you can think of for an asian american and Believe me, I've I've heard them all, and every single one was a registered trademark. And when I saw that, I thought, we got to push back on this. That like they're not even talking to our community. They're not even affording us the dignity of making that choice ourselves. Well, so I, mean, so I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about the decision to file a a second application and sort of what prompted that decision and how it kind of played into your litigation strategy. So the idea for the second application came when I switched attorneys. Uh, My first attorney, Spencer, was burnt out of law, told me he didn't want to renew his license and he wanted to take an in-house position. So I needed to find someone else to kind of carry the torch, so to speak. When we switched to the new attorney, uh, Ron Coleman, Ron told me that we needed to change strategies. He thought um, the one we had was a losing strategy, basically saying, you know, you can't appeal this idea that if someone claims you're disparaging, like what kind of evidence can you actually bring? And it didn't matter that we actually had a lot of evidence, everything from independent national surveys, dictionary experts, We had legal declarations from members of the Asian American community. I mean, it was hundreds of pages of evidence. But Ron says, as long as you fight like this, you're you're not going to win because no one has ever won when it comes to an appeal if they were charged with violating, you know, the disparagement provision. So he has this idea, like, let's go ahead and reapply. He called it the ethnic neutral application because he thought maybe we'll get a different examining attorney. And that attorney won't associate slant with the disparaging term because it's kind of a, an obscure racial term to begin with. And so we go ahead and reapply, but the trademark office gives us the exact same examining attorney. And that guy copies and pastes previous rejection into our new application. And at that point, that's when we decide, hey, we got something else to work with now because he just violated temp, the trademark examiner's procedures manual, which says you're supposed to do a fresh search every time a new application comes in, which he clearly did not do because all the evidence predated our application by two years. And on top of that, all of the evidence was uh, that supposedly showed how the the mark, uh, the slants was perceived in the marketplace was also very biased. It wasn't independent. It wasn't like thoughtfully constructed. Because when you looked at the screen caps of all the searches, it said slant plus the word derogatory plus they used the N-word, although the government used the, the full extension of that term. And so obviously we thought, well, if this eventually goes to something like the Federal Circuit, all they're going to care about is very technical, procedural, evidentiary-based kind of issues. That's where we're going to hang our hat. And so we started kind of preparing for that appeal, knowing that we needed to get out of the bureaucracy of the trademark office and even the TTAB and um, and kind of position ourselves strongly for that kind of appeal. 
So that's really fascinating. The initial goal then was really just to get the trademark registered by hook or by crook. And it was sort of the government that forced your hand to really push this challenge to the underlying justification for the denial. That That's correct. Yeah. Because, I mean, we didn't want a longer legal process. <laughs> like That was never the, <laughs> the goal. I don't think anyone wants that. Uh, and so we were just like, look, we should just get this registration. And and the really like the ironic thing about it is that the law would have never been canceled if they didn't push so hard on us. If they would have just been like, you know what, you got a survey, you got all these community groups, that's fine, good enough. Here's your registration. We would have just gone away and continued doing our work. And 2A would probably still remain intact, at least until like, you know, one of the other cases like pro football or, you know, possibly um the uh the other case that went up uh, this past year uh, who knows but like yeah. it's very very likely that um that 2a would be intact at least for a few years longer mm-hmm. well so you ultimately lost the TTAB and then had this like incredible win in the federal circuit. Like, how did that feel? And then how did you feel when the government decided to uh, like file a cert petition in SCOTUS? Well, so we actually lost at the federal circuit initially, like unanimously because of an old case called In Ray McKinley, uh, which basically says, you know, the, the government's not violating, violating your First Amendment rights because you can still use a trademark even if you don't have a registration. Uh, but, you know, that particular decision was kind of came under fire by a lot of, lot of uh, law professors. And I think a lot of even judges just kind of didn't really think that was the, the best kind of translation of that outcome. Um, but what ended up happening is uh, immediately after we lost – the court reversed its decision. They did a sua sponte um, kind of reversal. And then they said that we want you to come back in, argue this thing en banc. But at the time, the the court said, we don't care about any of these procedural and evidentiary based arguments. All we care about is whether or not the disparagement provision uh, violates the First Amendment. And the the whole thing about the kind of that argument is also that that kind of got thrown in last minute by accident. Like the, the reason why we even had a First Amendment argument, and we actually had a Fifth Amendment argument as well, um, was because my the main attorney, Ron, had a medical emergency. And so he was kind of offline. And so the junior associate, Joel, starts writing the brief. I mean, he probably was writing the whole thing anyway. I was the pro bono client, so, you know, he I'm guessing doing all the work, but he's like, you know, as a as a trademark attorney, you don't really get to make a lot of constitutional arguments. I'm just going to go ahead and throw this little three page like First Amendment argument and this little Fifth Amendment argument just in case it ever goes up. It totally won't, but just for fun. So it's a very like poorly constructed argument in a lot of respects. But he's just like, I just put it in there just in case, and that's what the court seized on, and so. Um, as soon as we, we got that kind of invitation to argue it on Bonk, then we went all in on the First Amendment argument. And at that point, um, I needed to take a moment to pause uh, because I was like, wait a second, this is a lot bigger deal. 
I, I, I didn't sign up for like taking down laws quite yet. Um, I needed to figure out what the potential impact could be. So I spent a lot of time speaking with experts and community leaders who focus on anti-racism work uh, throughout the country. Um, I probably spoke to about 140 different people uh, to try and kind of talk to them about this idea of justice and whether or not I ought to pursue the case. And, um, you know, I decided to move forward and went with their kind of blessing and support. And, you know, I think it felt great to finally win at the federal circuit, like for the first time after losing for over half a decade that I was like, wow, I I'm finally like see that like the system isn't that broken. Like we, we can make it work. Um, that was also the first time that I like finally got why the first amendment was so important as well. Cause um, you know, I was there for the bonk hearing and the court allowed 10 minutes for Lee Rowland, who is the senior staff attorney at the ACLU to argue on our behalf uh, in between the, um, our side and the government side. And when she was up there, it was unbelievable. Like I wrote about this in my memoir saying, you know, when I, when I watched her answering questions about the first amendment, it was like the first time I watched the matrix and Neo realizes he's the one, you know, he's like dodging bullets and parrying all these punches. And you're like, Oh, he found, you know, you like, I could finally see it and understand it because she was handling those questions unbelievably well and just citing cases and opinions from memory. And I just thought, that's what that's why we need the first amendment that that's why it's so important to protect this thing um so yeah it, it was it was really inspirational to be there in person of course i would have rather not gone to the supreme court i was really happy with that decision but the government wanted to drag it on a bit more so <laughs> i was like all right i guess we'll we'll take it one extra level Bring it on, huh? Right. I mean, so you said you were a you are a pro bono client. Um, could you have pursued this case if you hadn't had pro bono representation? And how did you find a pro bono attorney? Oh, uh, there's no way I could have done it. I mean, it, it's so so expensive. I Spencer was hooking me up by giving me a discount in the in the beginning, like with flat rate. He knew I was just struggling, and. Uh, there are multiple points when I wanted to give up and he's like, you know, it's, it's so important. I'm going to do this pro bono. You just t- help take care of the court costs. And when, when, when he needed to step down, when we were looking for an attorney, uh, we were looking specifically for someone who's willing to do it pro bono. So, uh, you know, when I got in touch with Ron Spencer and Ron actually had that conversation, like before handing off the reins, you know, Ron needed to guarantee that, um, the work would be pro bono as you know, like I could help take care of these fees. And I didn't realize that the fees exponentially get bigger. Like the, in the beginning I was like, okay, here's a couple hundred dollars to file. That's fine. I can scrape that together. But the first time I started getting like appellate printing bills, Oh my goodness. I was floored. I thought there's no way. And like, how can anyone f- afford to fight this thing? And especially when you consider the, the generosity of people like when we got our, it, you know, national um, survey conducted about how Asian Americans re- responded to the word slant. I mean, that's a quarter million dollar survey right there. 
And when, you know, we had a dictionary expert who, who, you know, the, the hourly rate on, um, on the, the linguistics expert was like way more than any attorney I've ever seen before. So it was, it was just mind boggling to see how much all this would have cost. Uh, but thankfully people were, were very, very generous and with their time and resources and, and it allowed me to continue on. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I wonder if you could reflect a little bit about, from your perspective, what the Supreme Court's decision in Matalvi Tam meant to you, sort of how you understood the outcome, and whether, you know, you agree with everything that you understand to be in the court opinion, or whether there are places where maybe your personal feelings or beliefs diverge from what the court said. Well, you know, the, the opinion itself is kind of confusing because there's not one opinion. Like it was unanimous in nature, but you got, you got several <laughs> different perspectives on it. Um, like I, I, at the end of the day, I don't think I could have asked for more. Like I was extremely happy with it. It, it felt like vindication. It felt like finally, like some bit of my work was seen. Although I will say that the Supreme Court did air in that they called me the lead singer of the band, but that's because the USPTO said I was the lead singer. And so again, just demonstrating that their basic Google skills kind of sucked. But <laughs> besides that, <laughs> you know, besides that point, like um, personally, I, I I wish the court would have addressed this um, a little bit further. I think they they had an opportunity to talk about how sometimes especially when you consider laws around um, around speech, that there's actually disparate impact on marginalized groups. Like, you know, this is the reason why almost everybody else got the benefit of the doubt when they wanted to register slant or chink or jap or all these other kind of insulting terms. Um, because people who tend to have more wealth and privilege and power tend to get the benefit of the doubt. Like, oh, there's no way that the these eight guys who want to register chink were trying to offend you. Yet at the same time when, you know, um, an Asian American activist, Randall Liu, wanted to register chink proud for T-shirts, the government's like, whoa, this is not acceptable. Like, this is disparaging for your, to yourself. And like, when you start looking at who, who got actually got rejected under 2A, not only for the disparagement provision, but also the scandalous and immoral provisions, because, you know, they kind of fell alongside mine after a couple of years. Um, when you looked at the people rejected, it tended to be small business owners, people of a lower economical status, people who just didn't have the resources to fight. Um, you know, I think about the predecessors to my case. And I very much think about them as, as predecessors. So uh, groups like Dykes on Bikes, the Lesbian Motorcycle Club out of San Francisco, they were rejected for being disparaging. Um, Hebe Media, Jewish comedy magazine, they were, they were rejected as well. Even though they had one for their magazine, they were rejected for other services. And I'm like, why do we have to struggle so hard for this? Like, <laughs> I, I wish the court would have addressed this because um, – all throughout my legal journey, whenever I talk to attorneys or law professors, they're like, well, if the, if the government gets it wrong, you can always appeal that decision. But I don't think people really thought about what it's like for non-legal folk. 
like for me, that's another year of my life. That's another, uh, or, or more, that's another like potentially tens of thousands of dollars to have to pay for printing, like, because the court doesn't know how to, you know, accept a file from Kinko's or like PDF, you know, like, come on, like I have to pay like a couple bucks a page for printing plus someone to staple it in the exact right position. Like things like that. Like I, I wish the court would have talked about like what freedom of speech really meant and, 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 and like kind of this broader level. And, um, but that being said, I'm not going to go back and complain. Like I'm good. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy with the outcome. So Simon, in closing, I know that you and the band have formed the Slants Foundation to continue this work in a similar vein to what you've done before. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that work and what you're doing and why you think that's important. So I actually stepped down from the band. Uh, the band, as we, we decided to retire uh, last fall, so November 2019, we played our final show. And that's because we wanted to focus more on our philanthropy. I mean, our band kind of became known as this activist band anyway. And I realized that the idea of the band was more important than the band itself. And whenever you get to that point, I think it's a good time to kind of shift gears. So I had been very passionate about working with nonprofits. We did that for, you know, the the 13 years that I was involved with the band anyway. I thought, why not look for gaps that aren't being served by the existing organizations or find opportunities to empower artists to get, to get them to work with community groups? So that's when the idea for the Slants Foundation was born. And so now we have an all-volunteer board. We really focus on that intersection of arts and activism. And we're trying to, like find creative ways to get resources to artists who, who don't know how to do things like apply for grants and that kind of thing. Like we just want to give them money, let them do their work and find ways to tie it back into our community. Um, we're, we're pretty, pretty new in it. We're just launching our, our programs this year, really. Uh, so we have a scholarship going out right now uh, for Asian Americans who want, who kind of have an unconventional approach to arts and activism Um and and we're going to be launching a couple other programs uh, over the next like uh, eleven months. So very very excited about this. And it, I think for me that is a much more important legacy than than our music. It's more important than our Supreme Court case because I like I, I work uh, around the community. Like that that's my daily life is like is walking with people affected by. Um, the culture and, and our society's laws. And if I could see people finding that voice, especially if they could find that voice through expressing themselves through the arts and uh, in, in a way that could advocate for better policy or hold power to account, then I'm all for it. So I'm really, really excited about it. Awesome. Well, it sounds like an amazing project and I look forward to the next phase in your really fascinating career. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, I I feel like I I should feel like I'm I'm retired, like I'm over, <laughs> but but it feels like the journey's just begun uh, because uh, now that I don't have like a decade long legal battle, I suddenly have all kinds of time.
notes too sharp. Sorry if our voice is too raw. Don't make the pen a weapon and censor our intelligence until it costs me nothing at all. Sorry if you take offense. We made of rules and played pretend. We know you fear change. It's something so strange, but nothing's gonna get in our way. There's no Singing our song. 